Welcome to Science with Sarah, a podcast where I learn about science and you can learn along with me. Join me as I start to untangle what the heck math is really about and dig into those basic science questions you were always afraid to ask in class. I could throw around a bunch of words like calculus, real numbers, and trigonometry, but A, I don't know what any of these terms mean, and B, I honestly don't know what we'll be covering. That's the whole point of this podcast, to go from my current understanding of the hard sciences, which is a very small foundation indeed, and slowly build up from there. My plan is to let each conversation build naturally on the one before it. Instead of being driven by a curriculum, it will be driven by curiosity. Specifically, what I'm curious about, but hopefully you'll find it interesting too. One thing I've never been able to drum up that much curiosity for is numbers. I'm definitely a visual learner, and frankly, numbers bore me to death. I've always assumed that this non-inclination towards numbers and formulas would block me from a career in the so-called hard sciences, like physics and astronomy. But I've recently become fascinated with dark matter and black holes, and it's made me open up this old question. Is there a path to the hard sciences for a visual learner or an arts person like myself? And could I possibly find this path fun when, for me, things like fractions and formulas represent the exact antithesis of fun? I don't know if it's possible, but that's what I'm here to find out. Welcome to Science with Sarah. In episode one of Science with Sarah, I interview my mom, Renee Jackson, who's been a math educator for her entire adult life. The point of this interview is to get to the bottom of what mathematics is really about. Just a note, my mom was out of the cabin for this interview babysitting my little nieces, so at one point you hear my niece Sabine in the background, and it's pretty cute. Let's get to the episode. We're going to start this podcast, very first episode, by interviewing my mom. Yay! <laughs> so mom, why don't you tell us what your name is? My name is Renee Jackson. And what was your job uh, throughout your adult life? As a mathematics educator at the University of Alberta. And prior to that? Prior to that, I was a mathematics educator in grade 7 to 12. Which is like, how many years? How many years have you, did you teach total? Uh... I think I taught about, let me think this through. Like before you married dad, so. Yeah, I think I taught for 40 years. Whoa. Yeah, that's a long time. That is a long time. That's longer than some people have been alive. <laughs> longer than I've been alive. Uh, okay, so what I was hoping to get from you for this first podcast was... A few things. I wanted to start at the very, very beginning basics. Uh, and so I thought you would be the perfect person to walk me through what is mathematics and why do I feel like I don't understand it? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> let's start with saying you do understand it. Okay, let's pretend that I understand it. Because every person on the face of the planet is mathematical. So if you're on the face of the planet, you would be mathematical too and mathematically gifted. Why you think you don't understand it, my conjecture is that 
throughout the course of your schooling in what I'll colloquially call school math, there tends to be a lot of emphasis on memorization and notation rather than any kind of conceptual understanding. Why do you think that is? Like, why do you think that's how the school system ended up forming here? Well, I, th- I mean, I'm just, I'm shooting in the dark on this, but I think, I think it's because very young children are concrete in nature. They learn things concretely. That is, they learn things tangibly, the, the, the things that they can touch and feel and stick in their mouths. Um, so when the forms of mathematics were first introduced to children, they were introduced in a, what seems like a rigidly concrete way without actually using the tangible materials. So it was this very rigid form of formulas. And I mean, even in elementary school, you learn uh, pi r squared is the area of a circle. But for most children in elementary school, that doesn't make any sense to them at all. Yeah. And I would say not even elementary school. Like just yesterday, for whatever reason, I was trying to find the circumference of a circle and I had the diameter. And so I Google searched how to find the circumference and it was multiply the diameter times pi. Right. And I have no idea why. Like, I don't know why I times it by pi and that worked. Like, I have no clue what the significance of pi is to a circle. I mean, it's one of those beautiful mysteries in mathematics, too, because pi is this number that emerges almost magically out of any circle, any size circle. It doesn't matter what size the circle is. Um, You would think that the formula would change as the circle got bigger and bigger, but it doesn't. It's always the diameter times pi. And so pi is this magical number that it doesn't matter the size of the circle. It could be a circle the size of the, you know, the equator of the earth, but it's still gonna be diameter times pi times 3.1415. Okay, okay. This does not help me not understanding mathematical formulas. Okay, well, in a way, it's too bad that we start with that. What we should start with with children and the circumference of a circle, for instance, is them just exploring it, taking measurements, like having various sizes of circle laying on the floor in front of them, and they just measure them. They measure the diameters, they measure the radius, and then they find out that there is a common ratio amongst every single circle, no Mm. matter what, no matter how big it is. Like I could walk around the whole outside of a big circle and then walk right across the middle. And that circumference divided by the diameter is always going to equal pi. Okay, well, that's a great example because I feel like that's such a doable thing that you could do in a classroom. So why don't they do that in a classroom? Yeah. Well, I hope that they do now. Um, I I mean, well, maybe not now in the pandemic. I don't know. <laughs> well, we'll have to go out and like ask a few of our friends if they're like, what grade do kids learn 
pi times diameter? Well, they, they, it's, it's in the upper elementary years, so between grades four and six. Okay, we're going to have to do a poll yeah. of all of our friends who have kids between the grades, grades four and six and find out if they're learning pi in a more interesting way than I learned it in my elementary school. Right, because all pi is is a ratio. It's the ratio of the circumference of any circle in the universe divided by that circle's diameter. And for some reason, it's this magical number pi. And it's this magical number pi that's always the same, no matter how big the circle, no matter how small the circle, no matter what, it's always the same. And it always has, it's always irrational, and it always goes on forever, and it never, the digits never, ever, ever repeat. Okay, let's go back to the very, very beginning, just so I can like create a few categories in my brain. Are there different types of mathematics? There are some people who would probably argue that there are different types of mathematics, but I'm going to say, in my mind, no. There's one kind of mathematics, but there are various strands within the one kind of mathematics that encompasses a whole bunch of different areas. So, for instance, there's four main strands in the kindergarten to grade nine program of studies. Um, and the four strands are number and patterns and relations is the second one. Mm -hmm. The third one is shape and space. And the fourth one is data analysis or statistics and probability. So those are the four main strands of mathematics. And it encompasses pretty much everything that you can do in mathematics. So where do those words like trigonometry and calculus fit into those four strands? Good question. Um, trigonometry would fit into shape and space because it is trigonometry is dealing with um, triangles, basically trigonometry, trigonometry, so three-sided figures. Okay. Um, so, so that fits into shape and space. That would include all the 2D shapes. That includes measurement of all shape and space. That includes any kind of transformation. Calculus fits into patterns, patterns and relations. So calculus would be under patterns and relations. Um, trigonometry, geometry would be under shape and space. And then, of course, chance and any kind of data analysis is under statistics and probability. I honestly think that one of the things that's most important to understand about mathematics is sort of what is what is the essence of mathematics rather than how can we categorize you know how can we categorize how can we break it down into these different strands what is the essence of mathematics itself like what is its nature right so if I was to hazard a guess based on my very simplistic understanding of math to me math is numbers <laughs> like that's what math means. It's like real numbers and fake numbers that some for some reason appear as letters and like that's math, just numbers. Right. And so uh and so that is that's very specifically what the nature of mathematics is not. Okay. Okay, so how would you define mathematics? Okay. Well, I would I I agree with the Alberta program of studies on and and it it fits most program of studies across the across really across the worldwide spectrum. 
um, in terms of the nature of mathematics. There's, there's seven different essences of the nature of mathematics, and number is not one of them. Okay. Number is a, is a notation. It, it isn't anything other than a notation. So it's a bit like, um, I don't know, learning uh, a specific word in a specific language like bijou and memorizing bijou and saying, well, that's French, but it's not, it's, it, it means nothing because all it is is a weird couple of syllables that really relates to nothing that you, unless you know French. And you know that it's jewel. What what is in the nature of mathematics, though, is that uses has the word number is number sense. Number sense. S e n s e. Number sense. Okay. So it's a sense of numbers. So if you have, let's just pick a number out of the hat. Let's pick the number two. Um, what do you think of when you think of the number two? Uh, I think about the way it's written. Um, the way it's written, mm-hmm. which is notation. Okay. Right? I think about... Then that is not math. Notation is not mathematics. Not- okay. So notation is not mathematics. So I would think of the number two no. and maybe I would think of like two apples, like two of something or two, two fingers. Two of something. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's that's more number sense. So it too is the two-ness of something is um, you usually think of it in terms of something tangible, like two fingers, two apples, two brownies, mm-hmm. whatever it might happen to be. Um, two mushrooms. Yeah, two <laughs> mushrooms. Is that Amarantia? That's, that's, that's Sabine. Oh, Sabine. Who, who's thinking of mushrooms. Oh, yeah. So the number two though, has a sense about it that if you didn't know any notation at all, you would probably have be able to have a sense of what two, two-ness, two-ness is. For instance, if I had, I don't know, some gemstones in my hand and I threw them onto the table and you were able to recognize um, a patterning or the way they splattered or whatever that perhaps there might be you could have a sense of oh there's rather there's not 10 there there's two there or there's not as many as 10 but there's more than one that's number sense got it so that's interesting so even like crows or apes like animals that have the ability to kind of count small numbers you could say that an ape or a crow has a sense like number sense absolutely absolutely and i'm i'm quite certain that a lot of animals have a great deal of number sense Hmm. and so number sense really has less to do has nothing to do with notation but has more to do with um comparative amounts maybe, uh, comparative quantities, you know, this is more than that, this one is less than that, Uh, those kinds of things, a sense of number, 
And yeah, I think a sense of number. Yeah, I'm sure that most animals do have number sense. Okay, so before I I forget this this thought at the beginning, you said there were kind of like three, or was it four? Kind of like divisions of mathematics. We talked about shapes and spaces and pattern and um, relations, pro- relations, probabilities. But then just a little bit later, you said there were seven essences of math. Yeah, seven. So this is what I think is more important than the strands, than those categories. Ah, okay, we've got strands and we've got essences. Yeah. So what people tend to do is they say, oh, yeah, I can think of math, uh, geometry, algebra, trigonometry, calculus, but those are just strands. Those are names of strands within mathematics, but they, but they don't really touch on what the nature of mathematics is. So the nature of mathematics, besides number sense, one, uh, one really important essence or nature in mathematics is change. Okay, so wait, was number sense our first essence? Yeah. They're not in any particular order, by the way. Yeah, there, there's nothing there's nothing linear about it, but you can, <laughs> even though linear seems very mathematical, but there's nothing linear about the nature of mathematics. It's all very, you know, it's all very woven and tapestried. And so number sense is definitely one of the nature of mathematics. Change okay. is another one. So... And what does that, what do you mean by change? Oh, what I mean by change is anything that changes. So, for instance, in, uh, in astrophysics, it's particle motion. They change. There's a change from the particle at this moment of time and at this moment of time. It could be a rate of change. Um, and that's a lot of, a lot of calculus is significantly tied into rates of change so just any kind of change in the universe is mathematical okay so does this kind of tie into this idea of comparability too like you're comparing what it was before and what it is now yes okay and it, again it doesn't mean that there's this linear thing especially when we're talking about particles um in physics, you're, it's not a linear kind of motion. Uh, it's not there's not this 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 vector in one particular direction like a car going down a highway. It's um, particles can move back and forward, up and down. You know, uh, they can spin. Uh, those kinds of things. Got it. Okay. So so it's any kind of change. Okay. So one number sense. Two any kind of change. Right. Three, and this almost sounds like it's a contradiction, but it's not. It's a compliment. The third one is constancy. Okay. Constancy. So this is the part of mathematics that I think a lot of people, anybody who might have liked mathematics when uh, they were in school might have said something like, oh, yeah, well, what I like about math is there's one right answer. Right. Like one plus one is always two. And that, that, you know, feels so secure and solid. Right. So it's not subjective. Right. So it's not subjective. But that's, but that again, that, that's completely 
<laughs> that, that's completely false notion of constancy. Constancy is, um, is the idea that one plus one only equals two in a particular context, in the context of base 10 arithmetic, for instance. There are loads of situations where one plus one does not equal two in mathematics. Like, give me an example. When, when does one plus one not equal two? Well, let's, let's not do one plus one because that's, one is an identity element and, and it's almost a constant across the, across the spectrum. Let's do four plus four. Okay. Okay. Four plus four in base 10 and this base is, 10 thing is, what does base that 10. mean? It's, it's, our, it's our number system. So any number is base 10? Any number that we normally talk about in our day-to-day -day life, except when it has to do with technology and computers, is base 10. So even fractions and like anything, like 0.5? Most, yes. Most everything that we do in our day-to-day -day life, except for computers, um, deals in base 10. Got it. Okay. So I don't know why it's called base 10, but I'll believe you. Well, because there's 10 digits. So here, the 10 digits in base 10 are 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. Ah, and then you build on those for every other number. And then you build on those Got 10 digits for everything that you're doing. Got so it. that's why children in, in school, when they're learning addition, they'll use their fingers. Four plus four, they'll put four fingers up on one hand, four fingers up on the other hand. They add them together. They're eight. Um, and that that makes sense to them because it's concrete and, uh, and they can use their own hands for it and that kind of thing. Right. So that's the illusion of constancy. That's the illusion. It is, it's not illusion that is constant four plus four is always eight in base 10 okay that's constant there's that that doesn't change that's constant but it depends on that context of base 10 for four plus four to be eight um, in base three there's no such thing as four plus four okay let's back up so what what is what possibly could base three mean well I know a really good card trick in base three. Okay. <laughs> but let's let's back up one more because we're so familiar right now with, with computers in our lives, right? Uh -huh. um, and all computer um, hardware is binary, is based on base two. It's either a zero or a one. It's either zero or one. There's two digits, zero and one. Yes. In base three, there's three digits, zero, one, and two. So there is no four in base three. There is no four in base two. The number four. So then, is, but then wouldn't, would you even ask that? You wouldn't even ask that question. Four plus four doesn't equal, well, like it, four plus four still equals eight. You just wouldn't ask that question in a base two situation. In a base two context. But you could ask, you could have that many though. You could have eight in base, <laughs> eight in base 10, um, 
you could say, well, I don't have, I'm not working in base 10 anymore. Now I'm working in base three and I have eight objects over here. How many do I have? So you could actually count them out in base three. You could count one, two, 10, 11, 12. Oh my gosh, mom, I'm already lost. I know. But <laughs> why would you ever do that? <laughs> um, the only, you wouldn't. Normally, we wouldn't on a day-to-day -day basis. We wouldn't do that. But we, we would do that in binary if we were trying to if we were trying to accommodate so many bits of information and we need to know, and we're talking about 256 bits of information. Well, 256 is a, is a base 10 number. That isn't a base two number. It isn't a binary number. And if, if we want to put that into our computers, it would have to be in binary, not in base 10. Okay. I think I like, like hazy on the corners of my brain kind of understand this. <laughs> okay. So, so far we have number sense, we have change and we have constancy. That's the first, that's three out of, out of the seven nature of And so what, what I'm kind of getting out of this for constancy is that it like, it is pretty constant, like it, practically speaking. It's practically speaking constant in a context, but context is everything. Got it. And the context that we pretty much deal with when it comes to everyday math situations is base 10. That's right. Except for computers, which is base 2. That's right. <laughs> Got it. Okay. And, okay. and really cool card tricks, which you could do in base 3. Okay. So we'll have to Google search card tricks. Uh... <laughs> and and be the life of the party and and impress a lot of your friends. We'll put a link to mom's uh, math trick or yeah, card math tricks at the end of the podcast <laughs> in the notes. <laughs> okay. I'll have to do a little video and, and you'll be amazed. But anyway. I'm excited about that. Uh, two more. Patterns and relationships. Okay. Is this one category on its own? No, it's two. Two more categories. Two more. Patterns and relationships. Patterns is one, one more nature of mathematics. Relationships is another more nature of mathematics okay so so talk us through talk us through what this what this means okay so whenever we encounter a pattern in the natural world or the cosmic world or anywhere in the universe um, it's related to mathematics I mean it's why famously I, th I forget exactly who it was um, said God is a math mathematician because there's patterns all through the universe and every pattern can be mathematically attributed like you can you could analyze it. it or notate it mathematically same with relation so this is like the golden ratio or the Fibonacci sequence where they say it appears in seashells and throughout nature yes yeah now the Fibonacci sequence is the pattern and then the golden ratio is the relationship. Okay, so can you tie those together for me somehow? Sure. The pattern is like uh, is a number pattern usually. Well, it, with Fibonacci, it's a number pattern. It doesn't have to be a uh, number pattern at all in mathematics. It can be any kind of a pattern. It can be a shape pattern, a symmetry pattern, a color pattern. It can be any almost anything. Um, as long as it's a pattern, it can be represented mathematically. 
so, but with the Fibonacci numbers, it's the pattern is, is one, one, two, three, five, eight. And you always, you keep right. adding. Adding the number, the two numbers previous. So one plus one is two, and then one plus two is three, and then two plus three is five. Mm -hmm. yeah. You could actually develop, you know, do a long string of, of uh, you know, blank, comma, blank, comma, blank. And, and most people would be able to figure out the pattern and fill in the blanks. The relationship of the golden ratio is actually related more to shape and space. So imagine a rectangle that has a dividing line, um, dividing it into two smaller rectangles, uh, dividing mm -hmm. one large rectangle into two smaller rectangles. And the, the golden ratio is a relationship between the sides of those rectangles. Uh, okay, so when we're talking about pattern and relationship, are they always tied together? No, but often they are. Cool. Okay, right. That makes sense to me. So the golden ratio, it's a ratio. We're talking about two things and their relationship somehow. Right. And, and the Fibonacci sequence is a pattern of numbers. Right. Okay, that makes sense. But they, but they relate to essentially the same thing that you see right. in art and in right. nature. And there's like a relationship between the golden ratio and the Fibonacci sequence from what I understand. Yes. And that's a, that's a fascinating mathematical exploration to go into as well. And it, it's a great one for kids in school too, because it's so, because it's so fascinating. Yeah. So maybe, maybe I'll do like a whole podcast just on the Fibonacci sequence and the golden ratio. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you you definitely could. I mean, it's it's really really fascinating. That's one of many patterns and relationships that has this this. Uh, it's it's almost magical the, the way they emerge together and the way they um, one sort of speaks to the other one. Yeah, I feel like out of all the mathematical things, like the what the two that come up the most often in my work as an art like a in the art world or the graphic design world would be the golden ratio and the fibonacci sequence absolutely um, and yeah. and it's it's uh it's a mystery uh which is uh, i mean it could be argued that mystery could be another nature of mathematics but it's it's really mysterious why the golden ratio is so pervasive it's so universally seen as beautiful hmm. uh, around the world in all different kinds of uh, of places and tribes and nations um, they have found that particular pattern that particular relationship to be beautiful we'll definitely have to do a separate podcast on that because I think that would be interesting that would be interesting to look at. So, okay, so far we've got five. Yes, we have five. We have number sense, we have change, we have constancy, we have pattern, and we have relationships. Right, and there's two more. Okay. Um, the sixth one would be spatial sense. Okay. So like number sense, but space. Like outer space? No, no, any kind of space. Uh, the the space between 
I'm holding my two hands up in the air right now, the space between them. So with depth and volume? Yeah, it could have depth and vo- volume. It could have any kind of space, uh, any, and, but not, not the space itself, but a sense of space. Again, like number sense, it's a sense of the space. So in this room where I'm sitting, mm-hmm. there's a certain space around me uh, which is less, the volume of air in this room is less than in the whole cabin. So uh, it's a sense, again, it's a sense of space and quantity, and it could be density, all kinds of things related to a spatial sense. So when you're talking about a spatial, like a sense, are, is it less specific? Like we're not interested in finding the exact volume of air in the room, but you have a sense, a natural sense as a human of like how long it will take you to get across the room or. Right. So what, what you're, what you're moving toward is the particular and I'm staying in the universal. Okay. So the universal nature of mathematics is a spatial sense. Um, there are lots and lots and lots of mathematical problems that ask for the particular in in space. How much paint am I going to need to cover this wall? Yeah, I think this is something that like, I find a little annoying in mathematics. I feel like they're always looking for the particular, and I find the particular number boring, for lack of yes. a better word. Well, most... <laughs> And most people do. Most, most, I would say that most people do find it boring because what's interesting is the universal and how I find my particular within the universal, um, how I construct my own understanding really even of, of what is space in my particular space, in my particular situation. Yeah. But what's interesting is the universal aspect of space that surrounds every human being. Okay. I want to come back to this idea of the particular and the universal, but first let's finish, let's finish these seven essences because we just have one left. Okay. One left. And this is, this is the coolest one of all. Okay. I'm excited. Yeah, I know. Be very excited. And this (laughs) one is, this one is so counterintuitive to what many people think mathematics is wait can i can i guess it can i guess yeah okay so something you just wouldn't expect and it's the most exciting (sighs) okay the nature of mathematics is puppies puppies yeah yeah that that's my that's my guess very very (laughs) close okay (laughs) very close um the nature of mathematics is uncertainty. Okay. So in each of these cases, you could say the nature of mathematics is change. The nature of mathematics is number sense. The nature of mathematics is constancy. The nature of mathematics is uncertainty. And would would every mathematician agree with these seven essences or is there like disagreements and factions between in the mathematical world? Um boy, I'm going to go out on a limb here and I'm going to say that any true mathematician, and I'm not talking about an accountant somewhere who's a number cruncher. Harsh for all those accountants listening. Harsh. So much shade, mom. (laughs) 
<laughs> I know. I'm just saying that um might have to cut that out of the podcast. Nah, I'm leaving it in. I'm not talking about them not understanding the nature of mathematics. I'm just saying that in their particular world, um, uncertainty, they would not want uncertainty to be a part of their particular world because they're accountants and neither would you. Yeah, yeah that would not be reassuring for their clients. Yeah, quite frankly, <laughs> you as their if client. Their taxes were done yeah. with uh, that much uncertainty. <laughs> yeah, here, here's yeah. your taxes. I'm very uncertain about it all. But so right. uncertainty in the sense of when when we're looking at, for instance, data analysis, there's always, always some uncertainty mm -hmm. or there's always some another word that I you could use is mystery. So even with all of our tech like all of our technology and super fine-tuned instruments that exist in the scientific world now, you would say, What's the smallest unit of measurement? A plank length? Like point zero 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 whatever. Like even with yeah. all that, you would say that uncertainty still exists in these very precise tiny calculations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because you can always go smaller. So but obviously there's enough certainty that we can, you know, build bridges and houses that don't collapse in on themselves. Absolutely. There's there's enough certainty that we c we can build a bridge that looks like it's not curved. That looks like it's straight even though the earth is a curved surface and you're building it on the the earth which is a curved surface. Mm -hmm. But it looks certainly looks straight. It doesn't feel like I'm going over a hill or when I'm going over the bridge. Right. It feels like I'm just going flat, but I'm not. There's always a measure of uncertainty or mystery. We could call it mystery as well. Okay. There's some level of, like, even in statistics and probability where, where people will say, You'll learn in junior high school, your teacher might have said, oh, there's a hundred percent probability that the sun will rise tomorrow. Sure. However, that's not true. There isn't a hundred percent probability that the sun will rise tomorrow. We're pretty sure it'll rise tomorrow because it's risen over the past however many billions of years, but uh, we don't know that it's going to rise tomorrow. Couldn't you be a smart aleck and say, well, there's a 100% probability that everything is going to change? Ooh, yes, you could be a, a smart aleck and say that. However, the problem is, no matter what you're looking at in terms of change, there's almost always something constant. Around the globe, scientists are frantically looking for a vaccine for the coronavirus. Yes. Well, the, the way that they do their experiments to find out if this thing works and this one doesn't is they, they have certain parameters that do not change from uh, trial to trial. Those are the constants of the trial. And then they tweak just one very small thing to find out if that little tweak is the thing that's going to that's going to make the the vaccine. But what you're saying if I'm understanding it is that even within those constants there's a certain amount of uncertainty. 
Uh, yes, because it because the context can always vary. Okay, so we have these two kind of like things that seem contradictory. We have constancy and uncertainty in like every scientific experience. Yeah, so so if you want to be a smart aleck kid, you could say there's a hundred percent chance that something within mathematics will arise in change, constancy, number, sense, patterns, relationships, spatial sense, or uncertainty. You could be a smart aleck and say that. Okay. So any smart aleck kids who are currently listening. <laughs> yeah, that would, that would be the thing to say. However, there is still mystery. There's still uncertainty because there's such a thing as chaos. And it's, a, it's an actual mathematical field. And it affects every other type of mathematics? Um, well, Or every other mathematical field, I should say? It affects every other particle in the universe. So yeah, I guess it would. You could say that chaos theory potentially can affect every particle in the universe. I think chaos theory would also be interesting for a podcast episode. Yes, it would. Super interesting. Okay, so I want to go back to my the question I kind of bookmarked for myself a little while ago, which is this idea of the universal and the specific and how the specific is so boring. <laughs> so, yeah. okay, this is my question to you. As someone who is, I have found myself across this, the past few months of pandemic, um, suddenly interested in, uh, dark matter and like astrophysics and cosmology and like I find these fields incredibly interesting but when I look at the specific careers within them they look so boring like they just like leached all the fun out of everything and all they're doing is figuring out specific tiny quantities that I just can't for the life of me care about right so my question is is it possible to pursue a career in a mathematical field such as astrophysics um that stays in the universal and doesn't require you to know or understand the general or sorry the specific uh and this might just be my laziness uh, towards learning it speaking here well, but i i mean i'm not an expert in the field of astrophysics and what kind of things you can uh, possibly pursue there but i i would go out on a limb and say absolutely yes you could stay in the universal without bothering about the particular um there will be people who need to bother about the particular and who want to they find an incredible um, satisfaction in measuring the spin on a particle, right? Um, that kind of thing. But there, I, I certainly believe that there is a place for people who who want to remain in the universal of it and generate. I mean, these would be the idea generators, right? We need uh, we need creation. We always need creation happening. We always need to be growing. So we're not going to grow necessarily in just cataloging all the specifics. It'll generate a lot of data, and it might move us towards some probabilities, mm -hmm. which might give an inkling of the universal, but 
I believe that most creation, most creative growth comes out of the thought patterns of the universal rather than the specific. Okay, so my next question, and again, it's a very selfish question. If I say with my uh, master's degree in graphic design and zero calculus courses under my belt, like, would you say that to be involved in the universal, you would have to learn the specifics? Like, would it be critical for me to take those calculus? I don't even know what, I don't, I don't even know, mom. I don't even know what courses you'd need to take. I'm assuming calculus and statistics and... To be involved in like astrophysicism? Astrophysics? Yeah, like to get an astrophysics degree, I'm, I'm sh- I am 100% certain that there are mandatory calculus courses involved in that, yeah. in that degree. Or maybe I'm not 100% certain. Maybe there's some uncertainty. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, yeah, there's uncertain. there is uncertainty. In the- I would say that foregoing learning the calculus... Calculus is such a beautiful, it really is a beautiful area of mathematics. It's, it's amazing. It's interesting. It's creative. It's, it's really beautiful. Hmm. Um, as long as it's not taught in this really uh, dry, dull, memorize these formulas and then plug this stuff in way. Um, where where people can actually explore, I mean, and that's really what cosmology is all about, is exploration. So where you can explore amazing things is in the calculus. Okay, so explain to me, okay, I'm trying to remember now, calculus is about patterns. Rates of change. Rates of change. Okay, so yeah. my understanding of calculus and looking at calculus books is not one of wonder imagination and beauty it is one of dull af yeah formulas and numbers and letters and like that's what the textbooks are full of so i know they're full of notation so how do you how do you pitch how do you yeah you haven't sold me on the beauty of calculus So, okay, okay, so going back to my mathematical scientific career, you know, where, at what point do you think I lost the joy of math? Junior high math, school math, was often not very exploratory. Um, It wasn't an exploration in um, mathematical adventure. It was, uh, it was memorizing formulas. Yeah. I think in junior high there was this there was this nasty sense of well no you got to get this because you're going to need this in high school and then you're not going to be able to get your credits and it just became this whole race for credits and at junior high honestly it should be nothing other mm. than this exploratory adventure in mathematics that's all it should be and I mean, so much of it probably has to do with like the teachers you have. Yeah, that's very possible. Yeah. And I feel like maybe it was also just the preference of the teacher. Like maybe they felt less interested or less strong in their yes, own Yes, I think skills. that's often the case, especially in junior high, because the teachers aren't, a lot of teachers aren't specialized in junior high. Yeah. 
Yeah. And like, I still did well in junior high math. Like I was a nerd and I got A's across the board. Like, I think I did fine until my one memory of math in high school is that my math 30 exam in my head, I flunked it, but I think I got like 70% or something. Yeah. Um, and I remember being so upset and I like didn't finish the exam and I studied and I just, I think I decided at that point that I was just not good at math. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was the case for you. That's what you, that was the decision you made. And it's a shame. I mean, and when you were taking your diploma, it was 50% of your, of your entire year's mark on that one yes. test. And uh, yeah, and that's a, that's a tough place to be. I remember like almost like wanting to take it again. And I remember going over the questions with you and, and I should have got them. Like they yeah. were too easy and I thought they were harder than they were. Yeah. And you overthought them. Yeah. But yeah. clearly there was still something I didn't understand, you know, at that point. Cause yes. I was clearly looking to fill in formulas right. and like slot those things in as opposed to understanding like the deep mathematical question. I'm not, I'm not sure that you didn't understand. I, I'm, I think what you didn't understand was that the math 30 exam was simply looking for the more simplistic solution. Hmm. It wasn't looking for you to think deeply about this thing. It was looking for the simplistic solution. And you had, you had probably overstudied actually, but yeah interesting how like one experience well I guess it wasn't just one experience it was like my experience of math and science because I even I loved biology but I hated chemistry yeah and I don't know why well unfortunately again chemistry is often taught as a well, and I suppose rightly so. It's often taught as a very formulaic thing because chemistry is measurements that have been made. You're learning the names of those measurements. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds really boring. Like the atomic weights of that have already been determined. You're not determining them. Somebody else determined them, and you're just putting them. You're just putting them in the periodic table and memorizing. Yeah. It. And. Th- yeah, and that's that's not very satisfying. And you know, I guess the other thing, I liked the arts a lot, so I ended up just taking a lot of arts classes, and you couldn't, um, or things in the humanities side, and you didn't have enough space in your schedule to do all of them. No, I think I think you had to choose you because you wanted to. Yeah, yeah you had to choose one of the sciences. If you were going into the humanities side of things, they. I mean, if you're going into the sciences, you had to take then them all. you could take them all. You didn't have to, but you could. Um, but if you were going into the humanities, you didn't have enough room in your schedule. So you had to pick one of the sciences. And a lot of... Which I hate now. Like, I hate going, like, looking back on that now. Not that, like, I don't regret taking my art classes and choir. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, I'm annoyed that I never got to dip a foot in, you know? yeah. And I mean, it was my own choice, but like, I didn't, it's like, you don't know what you don't know. Right. But I mean, it doesn't preclude you from doing it now. I mean, I guess that's why I'm doing this podcast. I guess so. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. We've been talking pretty long, so I feel like we should wrap it up, but I wanted to ask you what 
or who do you think should be the next step for my second episode? What do you think would be a good, logical, or interesting step in my in my search for the basics of math and science? Well, I think maybe, and, and I don't have a specific person in mind, you might have to cast around for this a little bit, mm-hmm. but I think maybe someone who could give you the nature of scientific endeavor, um, sort of like the nature of mathematics in this podcast, if the next one could be the nature of science and not through a really narrow you know, laser pointed focus. Um, But now more and more science people in universities, for instance, they're looking at the way um, indigenous peoples do science Mm. and have done science through the ages. And so a lot of them are changing their ideas on what is the scientific method. Um, If you're in an indigenous culture what is you know the scientific because the western sort of the the being tied to the the western view of science and mathematics has really hurt us we've lost a lot of the adventure and exploration and joy um because the western view seemed to be more geared toward uh memorization and step-by-step protocols and things like that it'd be it'd be interesting I think it'd be interesting to hear from someone in the science world you know what is the nature of science anyway yeah that's a really interesting question like what would be an indigenous approach to the scientific method or to the sciences uh yeah I think that would be really really interesting to hear Mm -hmm. thanks mom all right this was fun It was very fun. I hope you can cut out a whole bunch. Uh, Hopefully it actually recorded. I'm going to get Julian back in here to make sure it worked. (laughs) If it didn't work, oh. I give up. The podcast is over. If it didn't work, then that's it. This episode is. That's that's the end of that. Yeah, it's going on to the ether. I think ether is scientific, right? (laughs) Yes, very, very scientific. Yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. Love you. Bye, Mom. Love you, too. (laughs) 